Topping Talks. Hundred and five hours a week can't be beat. Welcome to Topping Talks. Topping Talks is a Topping Tribune production, and today's episode is proudly sponsored by Topping Technologies and ExpressVPN. Topping Talks is also on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and all of your favorite providers. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in IT security. Heck, I see their founder at least twice a day. Gotta say he's quite handsome and brilliant. He's me. That, that's the joke. If you're an IT leader or a business owner and you need assistance, you can reach the team at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Also, are you part of the 3.6% of Americans who still care about their privacy? If you are, then perfect ExpressVPN can assist. Even though 96% of stats are made up on the spot, ExpressVPN does give 100% guarantee via their 30-day back money guarantee. Now, without further ado, I'm proud to say today I'm interviewing the Global Partner Business Manager, Chad Short. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. It's Absolutely. good to be here. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. No, it's it's all my pleasure. You know, I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, and um, it's just good to be here. I love your setup. This is amazing, and uh, congrats on where, you, where you've been so far. Well, thanks. Much appreciated. Just just like IT, you always want to buy quality, not quantity. It, it is, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could get by, um, but just having good quality microphones makes it tolerable for the end user, right? So it's it's all worth it. Oh, absolutely. And then winding back the clock a couple of years, how do you first get into IT or when you were growing up, what was the first itch that kind of got you interested in the whole thing? Yeah, I think it goes way back to early 80s. You know, I, d- I date myself a little bit, but I think it goes back to the first Atari 2600, right? So I think anytime I, I get my hands on a device that has some kind of electricity rolling through it, it's it's an amazing device to me. And I'm just, you know, uh, amazed at what it, what it produces and what it does. So I think it started way back with a video game console in the, the 80s, right? So what was your favorite game for the Atari 2600? Uh, it's got to be probably Pitfall. You know, Classic? I, yeah, yeah. And, and for whatever reason, I always thought it'd be fun to just run backwards the entire time until the time <laughs> ran out. So I always played it backwards. I don't know why, you know. All so that, it was fun. That game was a classic. I think my favorite was River Raid. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was one of Activision's first. Now, yep, they're, now they're making Call of Duty 2959. I forget yeah. what version they're on. And but. I was just reading today, Activision <laughs> looks like they're going to go through with their acquisition with Microsoft. Yeah. Right? So I was going to say that. How many countries have had to sign off on that? The last road bump seemed to be the UK. Yeah. They're trying to decide, well, Microsoft's kind of a big company. Are, are we going to let them buy Activision, which is already big because they bought Blizzard back yeah, in the day? Yeah, $60 billion or something like that. I think part of the deal is they have to let Ubisoft buy off some of their streaming properties or something like that to, yeah. to kind of get through that French hurdle. But, yeah, it's – I mean, anytime you get into a global acquisition where you've got to get multiple countries or unions involved to, to get a deal done, you know, it's going to take a while anyway. But it looks like it's going to go through, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, I was going to say another good day to be a Microsoft shareholder. I wish. <laughs> oh, man, it's incredible. You know, it's you know, I, I kind of look back and you know, if you look at their current leadership, you know, Satya, he's done an amazing job with Microsoft. You know, oh, yeah. And, you know, Steve did a really good job for a long time, but I think he was maybe there a little bit longer than he should have been. You know, some of the acquisitions were probably a little bit late for what he did. You know, the Nokia acquisition comes to mind, and yeah, <laughs> you know, some of those. But you know, it's it's amazing the turnaround. You know, Satya has done with with the current the current business, right? It's just amazing. It's insane to think I could have bought it, you know, a couple of years ago, it was only $75 per share. Now it's, you know, what is it? Triple, quadruple that? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot, right? So yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, it's, um, you know, the capabilities they have and, and he's just got the right vision for where the company's going, right? Oh, yeah. he, he doesn't just 
sit there on his laurels and take what, what comes to him. He goes out and he, he kind of invents the business, right? Which is what you really have to do as a good, good company. You got to go out and push the envelope and you have to define things that people need before they understand that they need them. Right. And I yep. think that's where, you know, Apple did such an amazing job is like, Hey, I didn't know I needed this, this phone that I could type on with no, no keyboard or anything like that. I didn't know I needed this until somebody told me I did. And now I can't live without it. Right. So. Exactly. Got to know what they want before they need it. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's key. Doing a good job. Then, what was your first official role in IT growing up? Uh, first official role. Um, so, kind of a backstory. I started at Dactronics while I was in college. So, Dactronics is a really large um, scoreboard manufacturer. For those that aren't aware, they they make uh, a large quantity of the the giant displays you see at football stadiums and stuff like that, and even a lot of the smaller signages you see around, like the ticker tapes that run around. Um, you know, Times Square or even little display boards on the side of the highway, right? They make all of those kind of electronic displays. So while I was working there going to college, um, you know, one of my colleagues at the time, she, she's like, hey, my, my husband started working at Gateway Computers, right? You should go check him out. And I'm like, well, what the heck is this Gateway Computer thing, right? So I, I started looking into it and, you know, be me being a, a broke college kid at the time, you know, I had a chance to go from like, I don't know, $5 and 30 cents an hour to like eight. Right. So all of a sudden you're like, Whoa, that's so much money. What am I going to do with it? Yeah. Right. So it was kind of incredible, but, um, so I checked it out, got hired there. Um, and it really was the launch point for everything. Right. I, I stayed there, um, a total of about nine years. Oh, wow. Um, so the first job I had there was just technical support. So if you could breathe and talk to people a little bit and knew a little bit about computers, right. They would hire you because they just needed bodies, you know, in, in South Dakota at the time. You know, it's, it's not necessarily a technology hotspot, right? Um, were you at the, head, you at the, the headquarters? Um, the headquarters was in North Sioux City. I was in Sioux Falls. Oh, yeah. So um, it was an hour away, you know, so it was pretty close. But it was kind of their first first or second. I forget if Kansas City was before them. But it was kind of one of their first, you know, satellite facilities. And it, they had a lot of manufacturing or remanufacturing there, plus a huge call center, right? So they had sales and technical support. So I started in technical, technical support for about three years. Um, and then what products did you cover in that area? Um, really just desktop PCs, right? Yeah. So I talked to, to everybody. I remember talking to the great grandson of a very large, um, uh, vacuum cleaning company. Oh, uh, right. And he spent the first five minutes, uh, uh, letting me know he wasn't stupid in that, um, he was very angry. His printer wasn't working. And I'm like, don't, it's okay. I'm not going to call you stupid. I promise. Yeah. Right. Let's just get this thing working. Right. So, you know, Gateway's tagline at the time was you've got a friend in the business. So they encouraged us to take whatever time we needed to fix the customer. Right. So the customer really? approval ratings were just through the roof of Gateway because there was no pressure to do anything that, that would just get the customers off the phone and on you go to the next one. Right. So you just took care of the customers. So we'd often get um, you know, handwritten letters or typed out letters from customers, they would literally mail really? them into us and saying, Hey, he was such a, a great support person. You know, thank you for doing this. Right. That was regular there. So were the metrics in one wish where you didn't have to worry about a vast quantity of helping customers is more, more the quality of, absolutely. even if you only help two customers a day, you go above beyond. So they never forget about you. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And that was it. And, and there'd be times you'd go, you might have a four or six hour phone call with one person, you know, your shift is really? eight hours. I might talk to two people some nights. Wow, really? It really depends what it was, you know. And then, That's um, awesome. yeah, it was it was it was incredible. Of course, over time, you know, you know, bean counters start looking at things, and then you know they start compressing your time frames and yeah. start encouraging that, which is fine, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of times you you have a tendency to maybe talk a little bit too much if there's <laughs> no pressure whatsoever. But yeah. uh, but no, it was a good experience. So you know, three years there, and then at that time, you know, kind of in the late um, the late nineties, 
Gateway acquired this company called ALR. It was Advanced Logic Research, which oh, is really? a really um, up-and-coming server manufacturer. Right? No so way. They were based out of Irvine, California. Um, so they had a couple, you know, two-way servers. But what they really had at the time was this really cool server. It was a Pentium Pro um, six-way server, right? So it was, it was like the first six-way, six-socket um, server at the time. What? Just for my parents at home, what's a server for the folks who aren't technically inclined? Yeah, a server is something that uh, uh, you you basically get data from. So, um, the, you know, the biggest example for an average user is anytime you go out and hit a website that sits on a server, right? So it's a it's a uh, somebody else's computer that yep. gives you there's data. no cloud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is no cloud. It's just somebody else's computer and data center. So, yep, so. so Gateway was making those. I don't think anyone I know when I talk to people about Gateway, they all know the infamous. Great marketing, you know, the cow on the box, mm-hmm. you got the print, but no one knew they had business grade like servers. No, they didn't. And, and that's what was incredible. It was kind of an under the rug thing. And um, so when they acquired that company, um, they Gateway created a thing called the Business Assistance Center. Um, so they basically kind of plucked a lot of their, um, you know, better technical support people off the normal phones and they actually ran them through a six week um kind of crash course on MCSE certifications, right? So um, what kind of search are those for the folks at home? Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer. So it's basically, you know, server management, um, you know, IP configuration. I think one of them was Microsoft Proxy Server was you know, one of the electives at the time. So it's it's actually a battery of six different tests at the time, right? Wow. So it's it's quite a few. So I think we what we did was we would learn for a week. At the end of the week, you could take that test and then you'd keep going, right? Um, so everybody that went into the business assistance center actually became an MCSE by default. And that was really the launching point for the IT career. Cause you can, you can work with computers, but not necessarily be in IT. Yeah. Um, but that really kind of kicked it off with everything. So we were MCSEs right out of the gate, um, supporting, you know, servers, which were kind of new to, to gateway. And, and, you know, a lot of people ask, well, what happened to gateway? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a common question you get, um, you were everywhere. About yeah, yeah. At the late 90s, you know, the dot-com boobs happening, Gateway's growing hands over over fist because they just can't literally make enough PCs fast enough because yeah. everybody in the country wanted one. Um, you know, at the time, it was a neck-and-neck race with um, Dell Computers. At one time, Gateway actually had a time. A lot of people in Texas are going to hunt me down for saying <laughs> this, but um, at, at one time, Gateway actually had a slightly higher valuation than Dell, which is kind of incredible. I think it was when they were worth both worth about $8 billion, $8.4 billion, somewhere in there in the late yeah. 90s, which is a pretty big company back then. Especially um, from South Dakota, too. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, just kind of in a, a machine shed almost right yeah. in, in South Dakota. But anyway, so dot-com comes, it goes, it crashes. Gateway was highly focused on the consumer market. Dell smartly focused on Business. the enterprise market. Um, and away they went, and Gateway kind of you know, fluctuated around in there. They tried their hand. You know, Gateway was a really, really innovative company, which I think a lot of people kind of overlook at the time. Um, late nineties, uh, they invented a thing called the gateway destination, which was basically, it was a, a black cased PC you put in your entertainment system and it had a TV tuner video card in it. So you really? could plug cable into it. Um, and then it came with a 31 inch monitor, like tube monitor, right? So that oh. was an, a monster thing, but that was also black. So it kind of looked like your normal television set sitting on yeah. the counter. Unfortunately, it was a little bit before the internet, certainly before broadband really hit. So it's like, it's, it's really hard to take full advantage of a media based PC if you're using dial up modems, right? So yeah. everything had to come on a CD or DVD. So it largely became just a TV device or maybe movie device, you know? So they had some, some, um, internet-based applications for it, but it wasn't really, it was a little bit too early. 
you know, and then certainly that kind of transitioned into their next phase. And um, Gateway was one of the very first companies to launch plasma TVs, right? Really? Yeah. So um, some of the plasma TVs they had, you know, they came out and they really made them affordable for people. You know, a 42-inch plasma TV at the time was, I don't know, $2,000, something like that. So it was pretty reasonable. But um, I think um, some of the folks that were part of the product management team for Gateway um, that started that whole TV line that they had went off and um, joined or started um, Vizio. Right? Oh, really cool. So it's, yeah, it's, it's got an incredible story. So they were an incredibly innovative company. A lot of times they were a little bit soon to market, but it was almost too little, too late. Right. Yeah. So, and, you know, they did move the headquarters from South Dakota to Irvine, California. Yeah. Um, so that, that kind of created this weird rift in between the two facilities because you kind of had your traditional people that built gateway from the ground. And then you pull in this different management style and technique. And there was a lot of internal clashing. I think that goes kind of un, unrecognized a lot of times as culture differences in companies. That's a big deal. Um, but you know, kind of towards the end, they technically, I think, officially acquired Acer, but at that time they, they basically reversed pull, it, pulled Acer in to um, manage this new company. And then they kind of went off to the sunset. So really? Yeah. So How, it was a fun run. Yeah. Kind of like Sears and Kmart. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone think, Oh yeah. Sears bought Kmart. Nope. It was <laughs> the other way around, but Sears yeah. had a better, bigger name. So they kept the Sears name and yeah. stayed in Illinois for now. Yeah, yeah. So towards the end of that tenure there, um, I actually left for just a little bit, um, worked for just a tiny little VAR in the the local area. But I actually went back to Gateway for about another four years um, because um, another thing that was really kind of innovative at the time was Gateway opened their own country store. So probably a lot of people will remember these country stores where um, it was kind of like, you know, a precursor to the Apple stores and the the Microsoft stores. You know, Gateway had these things in the, the early 2000s. I think they had, you know, roughly 330 stores across the, the nation. Really? Were they in malls or strip malls? Or, like, where were they kind of strategically um, located? Because it was, was it like, a standalone store, like, by itself? Or was it part of, like, a could be both. stores? Could be both. It was de- definitely in more of a... a um, you know, an upscale area, right? Because a lot of times you're, you're looking for people that can afford PCs for yeah. one. But, you know, it, it would, you know, if it was in today's market, it would be next to Starbucks, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So, but the stores were cool because it had entire displays for everything they sold, which included all the media stuff. They had a couple training classrooms in there. So people that oh, nice. were new to computers, they could come in and learn and, um, you know, sit down for training or anything like that. And then they also had this little fishbowl thing. So what I did is um, I actually did installations for country store IT. Um, So they had their own small little IT department. They had a little ALR server. Oh, there you go. A couple network switches, um, uh, Cisco router router switches in there. So we had to set this thing up, and then there was a centralized management function for it. But they also had... um, you know, a, a really big software distribution practice there, right? So oh, really? basically anytime like a new application came out or a new operating system came out, um, we would have to develop that basically at the core and then it would push out to all 330 stores. It would, you know, really? re-image PCs, all these things, right? So it was a, a really big practice and um, a lot of work to do that because you think kind of l- late 90s, early 2000s, software distribution and management was still in its infancy a little bit. So, yeah. you know, had to do a lot of creative things to get that done. That's incredible. I, I think a lot of people forget how big Gateway was back in the day. It was big. Yeah, yeah. There was over, um, I forget the number, over 10,000 employees, you know, many, many locations. Um, it was a big company, right, at, at one time. But, you know, 
fortunes change quickly in IT, right? If you don't oh, make yeah. the right strategic decisions, you know, you can find yourself in a, in a really bad position, you know, within just a couple of years. And that's kind of what happened. Absolutely. And I think you hit the nail on the head when it comes to the cultures of the South Dakota and the California, because I watched a couple of those, you know, fun little business documentaries on the internet and everyone that covers gateway, that's one of the little pivot points. They note when the company kind of started to shift mm-hmm. split a little bit and becoming much more adversarial internally for, with all the politics and, yeah. And it kind of, a lot of people like the consumers also know, like it just didn't feel as homey. It, it didn't yeah. feel like family. Cause yeah, I mean, every tech company in California, they, they're smart, you know, they're high yeah. in Silicon Valley, but in South, South Dakota, that that's a very unique value proposition. It's more laid back. Yeah. It's, I mean, everybody came out of the, you know, yeah. kind of out of the country. Right. And, and, you know, I think with anything, you know, what you get out of the Midwest is you get people that are incredibly dedicated, incredibly loyal, incredibly hardworking. Right. Oh um, yeah. But they might be lacking some of the, you know, the, the, the business experience that, you know, some of these other hotspots get, but, you know, it, it was an incredible experience. You know, I remember Ted Waite, the founder, he would walk around it sometimes, you know, and it, it, it was almost like seeing Jesus walk around, yeah. you know? <laughs> but it was an amazing place because, um, you know, they just absolutely loved their employees, you know, first and foremost, you know, at least once a month, they'd walk around and hand everybody a t-shirt, right? Oh, really? Um, when I started, you know, they had monthly profit sharing and during Christmas times, they'd have like an extra Christmas fourth quarter bonus. And, nice. you know, they just, they, what they did right is took care of their employees, right? And yeah. when you take care of your employees, the employees take care of your customers, right? And, and, and smart business leaders know that. The, the people that don't take care of their employees, their customer satisfaction ratings are usually an indicator oh, yeah. of how well you're taking care of your employees. So that's something I learned really early is, you know, that's, that sticks with me today is, is just take care of the customer no matter what. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's almost sad. I read a lot of those business documentaries or the old, the business biographies of the founders of these companies, like Home Depot, Starbucks. And I'm reading the one with HP about, you know, Hewlett Packard. Mm-hmm. It's like the way they used to be treated their employees. And you talk to people, I'm not going to say which companies, but <laughs> you talk to some of the companies now, it's like, oh yeah, no, it's, it's not like that. And yeah. you can, you can tell, and even the products, in my opinion, yeah. are just not as good as when everyone's on the same page They're happy and motivated and they're all just on the same page of trying to make that dent in the universe, as cliche as it might sound. Yeah, absolutely. And then what was it like from your role over after you you left Gateway for the second time? Yeah, so, um, you know, Gateway was this amazing place, right? So it, it was an incredibly hard thing to leave Gateway, but you, you kind of know when it's time, right? Because, you know, the company is struggling, you know. Um, you know, I actually met my wife there. Oh, really? And, and yeah, it was. That's just, awesome. How, what was that story? Um, it, it was, she hates when I tell this story, but she actually came over to our team as kind of a senior technical support person. And I was, um, you know, just a normal tech support guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it was fun. You know, I just, I, I think anytime you can meet somebody that's in, um, a more professional setting, you get to understand people first and foremost, um, about who they are. Right. Yeah. Which I think is, is really, um, an advantage to when you you meet somebody right because if you meet somebody casually um you might get a different personality than when you meet somebody in person so i spent a lot of time with her just working with her um getting to know her as a person without having any type of um expectation for what you know a side relationship could be if that makes sense right oh, so yeah. you get to know somebody as a person for a long time before you have to worry about being stressed out or anything like that <laughs> yeah. about a relationship so i you know i as, as difficult as it is sometimes, you know, later on, if you're working with somebody that you're, you're possibly dating, you know, having that time to get to know somebody with no expectations is much more advan- uh, advantageous to me than, than, you know, trying to go you know, 
to whatever the, the kids use nowadays. The, All the apps. Yeah, yeah the, <laughs> the apps or something like that, right? Because you get to spend time with people, right? So that was that was, that was was a fun experience. And then did you ask her out or did she ask you? Or who was the one who, who took that first step? You know, I don't I don't know. We used to have these um, incredible rubber band wars. Oh, um, really? We, the, the way the, the, the cubicles were laid out, it was kind of like this big square. So you had cubicles yeah. around the edges and some in the middle. And I, I don't know how it started, but... At, at some point, these rubber band wars would start, so you'd kind of duck below <laughs> your, your cubicle, and uh, I don't know if she shot me or I shot her, one of the two. I think that's how it started. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. So we always, always joke about rubber band wars. Um, <laughs> some of the things I kind of miss about the, you know, the cliche cubicle, corporate America, yeah. there, there's some camaraderie there that people Oh, take there for, is. You know, yeah. lifelong friends, you, you, you kind of get out of that place, and, you know, there's, there's people you work with for, you know, many, many years. Yeah. Um, you know, some of them I worked with, you know, four, five, six, eight years. Oh, wow. You know, they're, they're lifelong friends, and they always will be because you get to spend that time with them. Right? Exactly. Yeah. It's one of those cliche things to say, but the logo on someone's business card might change every couple of years, but yeah. the person doesn't. No, no, they don't. And, you, you know, people are the same. You know, to me, it's like once you kind of get into your, your late teens or early 20s, you're kind of that same person the rest of your life for most people. And, yep. you know, your, your skin gets a little older, your, your hair <laughs> might get a little bit grayer um, and everything, but you're, you're largely going to be the same person for a long, long time. And, you know, once you find somebody that, you know, you're compatible with from a, you know, a friendship standpoint that just stays, right. It doesn't go yeah. anywhere. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And then what, I'm sorry to interrupt this, yeah. my ADHD is sidetracked there, but then where did you go from gateway? Cause you, you kind of say you kind of had that gut feeling it's time to yeah. go. And yeah. So we had a, a really good opportunity. Um, th- there was a, um, uh, a credit card company that actually started in South Dakota that built a call center. Um, again, more call centers in South Dakota, really just a half a mile away. So I was, you know, pretty fortunate that they needed a network administrator um, to kind of manage the site for them. So um, kind of through my gateway connections, I was able to, to jump on board there and spend a couple of years there. And that, you know, and that was, that was a really fun place to work. Another really a great cultural company. Um, so I had a lot of fun doing it, but it was really just kind of the on-site support um, IT staff for, you know, a, a call center for, you know, collections and credit and stuff like that. So. What was the most challenging part of that role? Um, had to wear a tie every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a bank, so you get, you, you get to wear a tie to work every day, but no, and, and <laughs> it, it, I don't think it was so much challenging as it was just, um, kind of a lot of the same, you know, the, the, the call center is there to, to, to serve a function and it doesn't really change a whole lot. So, um, if you're looking for something that, that changes, you know, every day or every few months or something like that, that's probably not a great, great place to look for a lot of change. But, um, you know, I had a, a ton of experience there. You know, again, I got a lot more tied into the network side of things, um, you know, being a network administrator there. Um, so it was, it was a good, good fun time. Yeah. And then what was it like going on to the next role, getting to the absorbing, not just the networking, but the whole infrastructure? Yeah. Yeah. So that one... Um, that one was fun. Um, so kind of a long story, when Gateway started to kind of, you know, roll down the other side of the hill, they actually, it, it still kind of boggles my mind, but they actually outsourced their IT department uh, to a company called ACS. Really? Affiliated Computer Services, yeah. So uh, ACS was based in Dallas. Um, so, you know, just to kind of uh, make the story a little more compact, the reason I'm in Dallas is is kind of through that, that nature, um, you know, it, I, I had a friend that when uh, the outsourcing happened, he moved down here to Dallas. Um, I happened to roll through here one day um, just just on a whim because we we just decided we wanted to go see an ocean one day. Um, yeah. Galveston's the closest thing ocean you can get to in South Dakota. 
so we rolled through Dallas. I saw an ACS building, um, you know, kind of in the corner of 35 there. And um, I just happened to email him um, saying, hey, just checking in, see how you're doing. Uh, I hadn't talked to him in a while. Um, just just checking to see if you're still there. And uh, he's, he's like, yeah, we are. He's like, we're hiring. Do you need, do you need a job? <laughs> right? So it's like, oh, that's, that's kind of quick, but, Perfect. you know, let's talk, right? So I think, um, you know, like the next Monday or something, we had a quick chat. He put me in touch with the hiring manager. And he's like, hey, uh, this was like on a Friday. He called me. He's like, can you start Monday in Dallas? And I'm like, uh, it's, that's, that's a long ways to start on a Monday from South Dakota. So give me a little bit of time. You know, I called my wife, and I'm like, do you want to move to Dallas? And um, she started crying. And I'm like, why are you crying? She's like, I have no idea. But she kind of grew up. Um, her, her dad was in um, um, military avionics and worked for Honeywell. So she, oh, no way. She, she traveled a lot and moved around a lot. So she spent her, her kind of um, um, elementary years in Oklahoma City. So yeah. the South was kind of home to her. Oh, yeah. Um, so I think that's why she got a little bit emotional. But we decided to make the move. And two weeks later, I, we moved and started down at ACS uh, Xerox. Yeah, outsourcer. That's the place to be. What, what was it like having the whole infrastructure under your belt? And it sounds like you guys worked with uh, – a lot of fast food restaurants headquartered uh, maybe in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of companies that that were there. Yeah, there's a lot of you know places that that love golden arches or you know they like wearing crowns. You know those kind of companies. Yeah, Canadian. <laughs> so things. they had a lot of amazing brands. So you know, I think to me, you know, from a, a true data center experience standpoint, that place was amazing to to kind of learn from because you get to not only um, you know, see that services side of, of how you do it business. But at the same point you get, you get it exposed to a ton of really large corporate infrastructures. Right. And some of them, um, you know, used ACS Eric for a managed service where, you know, they, they might all buy into a, you know, maybe a big storage array or something like that, or that you might manage their, their it infrastructure, you know, holistically up to themselves. Right. So, yeah. So some of them, we managed their infrastructure for them and they basically, you know, paid us to manage it or, you know, they would subscribe to the shared services were ultimately cheaper because you're getting, you know, economies of scale to do so. Mm-hmm. Right. But just a ton of, ton of experience there, right. You, you really understand what situation management is and IT processes. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, th- I think one of the things that sticks with me most about that role is, you know, doing disaster recovery tests. Right. So, you know, oh, yeah. uh, ACS was a big pa- uh, partner of SunGuard at the time, right? So yeah. just about every single customer that um, had services through them um, would do a DR test about once a year, right? So you generally have 24, 48 hours um, to go prove that oh, you're protecting their their information and you can do it in 48 hours, right? So, um, you know, a lot of times what it, what it took is you'd go pull a, a list of catalog tapes from your your backup system um you'd ship them off to SunGuard, and at like oh 0800 you're gonna you're gonna start doing this right so you recover the operating systems you recover the backup recover the catalog and then just start restoring data right and you go from there and those were always challenging simply because you know it you know tape backups at the time even though they're pretty fast they're still not ultra fast right, right. so if, if you've got a you know 24-hour restore that you know is going to take 24 hours but it's a 48-hour test oh, anything breaks right yeah. it, it gets in a, a world of hurt in a hurry especially if you have to, if you have to restart a restore Jeez. um but a lot of times it's just you know configuration management but there's many times where you'd get down to the you know the 23rd and a half hour and you know you've got 28 minutes of work to do and you've got 30 minutes to get it done right so a lot of pressure um, to get those done there's many times i stayed up for 
well over 28 hours, 30 hours, 32 hours. Oh my gosh, really? Doing a test. This right. is before Red Bull and, and Monster. How do it, you do that? It was, um, it was a lot of, uh, you know, keep, kind of keeping one eye open, trying not to fall asleep, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, a little bit of coffee, a little caffeine, um, uh, to keep it going. Um, you know, we did have a, have a follow the sun model. So, you know, it was, you know, generally pretty, pretty good that we could do handoffs well, but when, you know, comes coconut cutting time, it's, it's all hands on deck to get yeah. things done. Right. I was going to say, it's also important. It's astonishing how many folks, they, they think they have good backups. Like the first thing I ask them, it's like, when was the last time you tested the backup? Yeah. And their faces sometimes just go white. It's like, yeah. well, we, we try to, or we want to. It's like, yeah, you, you know, yeah. hope for the best, pray for, what was it? Uh, hope for the best or uh, prepare for the worst kind of yeah. thing. It's like, and let's see, let's try it out. Let's see, let's see, see how this it goes. Yeah. 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 You definitely need to test it. And, you know, it's, it's one thing to, to make sure your backups are doing, but you, you have to test it, not just to make sure that you can actually read the data, but you, you really need to understand the timing of that restore too, right? Because, you know, if, if you've got an older system and a lot of data, you know, many, many petabytes, gigabytes so yeah. to petabytes or terabytes, um, you know, if that takes 96 hours, is it an actual valuable asset to the company? Yeah. Right. You know, cause I mean, how much can you afford to take down in any amount of time and if my my systems are down for a week because my backups are so incredibly slow mm-hmm. what do i do with that you know is is that actually business continuity at that point right so you know some companies if they don't if they're not able to use their it systems for a week that could be pretty devastating right oh yeah just ask, just ask mgm maybe uh, <laughs> wow yeah that's that's a whole nother that's a whole nother topic right right oh my <laughs> gosh well there's a report what was it was it caesar's one of the two where they were shut down because of the ransomware, they actually just resulted to using cash and yeah. analog technology. Isn't that amazing? So the, the casino was technically open, but it was all cash. You bring your credit yeah. card, and they're, they're doing the old... Oh, uh, yeah, the clicky-click. Click, click. I got one in the kitchen, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's one of the most random things I got from an IT recycle project. I'm like, can you take that? It's like, sure, why not? It's metal. I could recycle it. <laughs> yeah, and then all of a sudden you get nervous because somebody has a piece of paper with your credit card information. E- exactly. Right? To kind of take it for granted <laughs> now that you don't actually have to leave a copy of it anywhere. Right. I was going to say, so, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, more companies really need to know what's the true cost of downtime and then to restore. Because, again, backup might be expensive, but if it's all flash and gets you back up, line, up online in New York Minute, if you're you yeah. know, generating a, your billion dollar your company, your casino, yeah, probably makes sense. But Yeah, and, and I think that's, at the end of the day, what everybody needs to focus on is, is the recovery efforts. And I know, you know, I think that's gotten enough airtime lately from companies to understand that, but it's something you really need to go through and, define and understand what your recovery looks like, you know, just kind of conceptually. Um, and, and then the technology you have, does it actually make sense for what you're doing? Right. Don't, yeah. don't just, you know, we'll, we'll kind of talk about my most, my most recent company at some point, but you really have to kind of have a conversation that says, don't, don't just, don't just say your backups are working. Right? Yeah. What is your recovery story look like? Let's just talk about it. Right. Because exactly. if, if it takes you two days to get that done, what does that do for your business? Exactly. How much are you paying your employees per hour again? And how many employees is that? Yeah. What's that multiply to? It's like, and then how will your, how, how unhappy are your customers or your end users yeah. be your customers? Well, and it's, it's, <laughs> you know, a lot of times, if, especially if it's ransomware, it's a reputation thing, right? Oh, All yeah. of a sudden people are going to be like, man, maybe I don't want to go to MGM or maybe I don't want to go to XYZ company because they've been exposed. They've been breached. Maybe that starts creating these little things in my head that say, maybe you know, maybe they're not doing what they can do to protect my information or my data as a as a customer, right? So that that goes through people's heads a lot. Oh, absolutely! I remember a couple of years back, Target got hacked, yeah. and they a lot of the consumers they ended up going to cash, 
And for retail, that's the worst thing on the planet because psychologically, Americans, every single time, every study will always show if you're spending cash as opposed to a credit card, you will spend less money because you feel it and it's real to yep. you. Ironically, it's not really real because it's fiat cash and money, but don't <laughs> get me wrong. It's, it's a fascinating psychology thing, but the brand, the target was just tarnished so much. People stop shopping there and they stop using credit cards for a while. Yeah. yeah. And that cost them, I mean, a couple billion, I believe. Oh, easily. A, com- a company that size, right? I mean, yeah. I, I can't imagine how many dollars in transactions every hour that happen at a company like uh, Walmart or Target or anybody like that. It's an incredible amount. Oh, and it never stops because all of them now have bolstered e-commerce platforms as well, too. Yeah, yeah, especially Walmart. You know, they're really trying to cha- challenge Amazon, and they're, oh, yeah. they're doing a pretty good job of that. So it's time is money for sure. Absolutely. That was probably one of the best acquisitions that I've seen in IT lately in the past 10 years is when they bought Jet.com, mm-hmm. which tried to beat Amazon for a little while, and they grew pretty quick. And then Walmart bought them and, you know, brought them into the Walmart e-commerce platform. Yeah. So it, it'll be interesting to see who wins the race at the end of the day. But they're they're finally starting to catch up where – People used to joke about, you know, what, do you buy something at Walmart.com? It's like, no, we got Amazon. It's like, eh, it, it's caught up pretty good. So it'll be interesting to see who wins the final race. Yeah, and I think what people don't realize that Amazon did the best is they really solved logistics, right? Um, oh, yeah. More than anything. And, you know, uh, you know, you can always get things sometimes, you know, a couple hours later, if they know the truck's going to be out that way, they've got all that data they can leverage. And, you know, just recently, a couple times, it's like, I'll order something in the evening. It's like, do you want us to drop this off while you sleep? You know, like, that oh, kind of geez. thing. It'll be here at 3 and 3 a.m. When you wake up, you open your door, and there it is. Like, that's incredible. Oh, it's, and I was going to say, FedEx and UPS should be scared to death because, of course, Amazon's building out their whole logistics program. Yeah. It'll eventually, depending on how big the company gets, it might just be a whole separate new entity, too. It could be. Yeah, absolutely. It's big enough. You know, I, I've, I've kind of been wondering, you know, at, at what point do they spin AWS out, you know? Yeah. Uh, never. Company, but it, <laughs> they it, won't. It's it, too well, easy. But. It, it helps offset all the, lo- all the yeah. break-evens or the losses they might be having. It's just... It's too convenient. I mean, ADWS, yeah. AWS, I mean, it's, it's one Round of the best solutions right. out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was the same thing with, with EMC and VMware. It's oh, yeah. like it's, VMware is the crown jewel of the platform, you know, and that's half the reason yep. um, XP acquired them or yeah. Dell acquired EMC. I was going to say, speaking of perfect transition, <laughs> speak, what was your next role after that? <laughs> yeah. So, um, at, you know, so I spent about four years um, at ACS, uh, learned a ton. Um, you know, they were kind of dog years. I, I really equate it to about eight years of experience because when you work, you know, 60, 70, 80 hours a week, it, you, you, know, you learn a lot from there. Um, uh, at the time I was managing TSM or net backup teams and data domain hit kind of hit the street at the time. Right. And it's like, yep. well, what is this new thing? It's a, it's a virtual tape library, you know, back ended by disk drives. Right. Well, this thing's cool. What does it do? Like, well, I've got an LTO four or five tape drive. I can back up a couple, couple gigabytes a second. This little data domain thing maybe does a hundred megabytes a second. I, this is hard for me to use, but it doesn't break, right? It's easy to set up yep. instant restores. The restores are way faster. I don't have to worry about running to, you know, SunGuard or somewhere else to grab a tape. It's instantaneously. I just need this thing to scale. Well, that's yep. kind of easy to do, right? You just get bigger CPUs and you build more things into it. And, you know, before too long, you have this thing that's really, really viable. So that thing uh, really kind of hit my radar as, as some kind of breakthrough technology that kind of hit, kind of hit the, you know, the street at the right time. Um, you know, so from there, I got really interested in data domain. Um, I actually wanted to join data domain, didn't quite work out. And at the same time, right about that time, uh, uh, EMC acquired data domain, right? So shortly thereafter, I joined EMC primarily with trying to work on data domain products. So I, I, Started as an implementation engineer, um, mostly did uh, data domain products, but I uh, kind of branched off and did most of um, 
the data protection family. So Avamar Networker, um, Data Protection Advisor, which was Wisdom Software before that. Um, so I really kind of did most of the data protection family and um, and then kind of what my end goal was to become a, a pre-sales SE. Um, so that's that's where I kind of moved to after a couple of years there. Um, ironically enough, I became an SE for ACS Xerox, right? So I kind of got to go, go talk to my, my old colleagues there about, you know, EMC solutions, and data domain, and everything else. So. What was the culture like at EMC? I've heard all the fascinating stories because it, I mean, it used to be like, it was a pinnacle of storage. You talk storage, yeah. it was them or nothing. Yeah, yeah, it really was. And it was kind of an incredible culture. You know, I, it, it was, um, you know, I hate to ter- use the term like win at all costs, but they were there to win, right? Um, they were there to win business. They were going to win every single deal. Everybody was a competitor, no matter how big or small you were, right? We are here to win the deal. And they did an amazing job of doing that. Um, you know, it, I think part of it too is they had the right products too to do it, right? They did have industry leading products and um you know it was pretty incredible culture really. Again, learned a lot, learned a lot about the sales process, um, you know, more than anything. So, you know, when you understand technology, that's one thing, but you understanding how the technology is acquired, that's another that's another skill set to learn. And um, you know, I think I learned a ton there. I had a really great uh rep that I worked with there. Um, you know, I miss working with him every day to this day. You know, we still keep in touch, of course, but um it was a great time. Um, yeah. Kind of work hard, play hard mentality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, we definitely worked hard. Um, but, but you're rewarded well too, you know, at a company like that. So they took, they did a pretty good job taking care of their employees too. Absolutely. I remember. So back in the day when I you know, kind of thought I'd love to have a career in corporate America, one of my mentors told me, you know, always be interviewing. So when I was in HPE inside sales, I do, you know, seven to 12 interviews a week at a minimum. Mm-hmm. And I remember I did one towards the end for EMC and I got to I went got to the point where I went all the way down to Round Rock, and I met one of the legacy EMC reps. So she was a really great leader, and I did a whole whiteboard at the time. HPE had acquired three par, and I knew it pretty well. And I was actually interviewing interviewing for a sales role, but I had a little bit of techie, technical acumen, so I did a nice whiteboard presentation talking about how the scale of the three par is, kind of show I had some storage experience, and the interview was going great. I'll never forget, Amy asked me the most unusual question as one time in my interview career, because I've you know, i done it for years, I could ace them pretty good, as one time where I was dumbfounded. She looks at me, she goes, what are you in the, uh, Aruba, what are you in the Aruba team? What do you like to do some, for fun? Mm-hmm. And I just felt like ice water just splash all over my body, because I was like, I don't have an answer for this, mm-hmm. and I've never been asked this question before, and I don't lie so it was like a long, almost as long and as awkward as that pregnant pause was right there. It was just like that, only maybe 12 seconds longer. And I eventually just said, oh, yeah, um, um, what did it? Uh, we, we meet about once a year for QBRs. Like, we'll, <laughs> we'll meet as a team at a, like at a restaurant. But, like, that was the most unusual question. And then, you know, she was, she, she was extremely kind of professional. She kind of gave me examples of how her and her team will go on these, you know, fun activities once a month, really team-building experiences, and I just thought, I was like, I never did that at HPE. And then when I got prone to, you know, field sales at Network, so I'm like, I never did that. And she's like, yeah, if we, you know, we're, we're not just, you know, working together. We're, you know, work family. We want to work, we want to win. And she told me about all that great winning culture, but she says, like, at the end of the day, we also want to be a team too. Yeah. And that really, that really stuck with me when I'm trying to build out my team and I'm trying to think of, you know, how can I give everyone the best experiences in life, not just with technical acumen and probably providing great solutions and experiences, but I can really have fun together as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of incredible. I mean, you spend so much time with your colleagues, like you, you have to figure out how to just 
have, have that personal experience, right? You know, understand you working with people, right? They're, yeah. they're not machines, they're people. How do you get along with people and even find time to kind of relax with those people, right? And like we mentioned at the start is, you know, I, I still have friends from Gateway yeah. many, many years later. And, and you don't get that if you don't take time to actually just get to know people and, you know, and have fun with them. So. Exactly. And so one of the best pieces of advice I ever got growing up was wherever you're working, always be polite, professional to everyone because time is half for everything in life. Someday they're going to want to call in a favor to you or vice versa because especially whether it's insurance, automotive, or technology, they're big industries. And more often than not, people kind of tend to, take a, tend to stick in the same industry. Yeah. And then you're able to call in a favor and be like, hey, I, can you get me an interview at this other company? So Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's kind of incredible. And, you know, you know, technology really kind of transcends time. You know, technology is just the tool you're currently using to accomplish a goal. Exactly. Um, you know, so the technology is going to change. The companies are going to change, you know, especially in tech, right? There's a lot of, a lot of turnover, um, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, just because that's how it is, right? People oh, yeah. are always gravitating towards new technologies. And, um, you know, it's so incredibly rare for people to stay at a company for many, many years um, over time because, you know, frankly, there's there's quite quite a bit of uh, incentive not to, right? Because Unfortunately, yeah. I blame human resources for the record. <laughs> that is an issue because yeah. I've had the same conversations when I, because, you know, if you know your manager, you'll have a quite, you'll have a frank conversation about career progression, industry trends, and mm-hmm. sometimes you'll say, hey, I mean, by industry trends, I'm underpaid by 18% based on my metrics, based on where I'm in my career, based on how much revenue I'm achieving for the business. And they'll be honest with you. They'll tell you, like my manager is telling me like, oh yeah, I mean, H- human resources will only allocate a certain percentage we're allowed to. Yep. However, <laughs> if you go work for the competition for 12 months, I could hire you at whatever price point I basically want. Yeah. So yeah. Un- unfortunately, it, it, that's why you see it. Yeah, yeah. And you right. do. And, and everybody knows it, right? It's yeah. no secret. And, you know, th- you know, I think the great thing about it is people, I, th- I think a, pe- a lot of people would like, to stay at companies longer if right. they offered pensions and those kind of things. But at the same point, what are those? I'm kidding. <laughs> well, and, and that's the point is like, you can, you can take this company that has a pension, but your salary compared to maybe a tech company is going to be half. Yeah. You know, so you just take it and invest it yourself and away you go. Yeah. Right. So I, th- I think that's the, the difference is as long as you're smart with, you know, your money and you know, plan accordingly, it, it's, it's the same, if not better than, you know, maybe a place with a pension, you know? Gonna, oh, that's another topic for another. T- oh, I'm just going to say I'm, I'm trying to think. I know one company in Texas, um, anecdotally, just from prospecting and researching. I know one company in the private sector who sells pensions. Yeah, it, it's gotten that rare. Yeah, it's really rare, right? Yeah. So, it, and you know, I, I I think that's kind of a, a a common thing too. Is you, you know, I think our generation. I'm I'm grouping myself yeah. with you to, to take on your <laughs> youth I'm energy. Here. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think a lot of you know, like my parents' age, you know, a lot of times they they stayed at companies for so long because so many of them had really good retirement plans. Right? True. And they don't quite understand that um, people don't stay at companies anymore and they don't understand why you would change companies every few years. But it's like there's, there's again, no incentive to, right? Yeah. There, there's no reward to stay at a company. There's generally only penalties. True. Um, other than making sure you're not doing it so frequently, you're damaging yourself, right? Right. Um, you know, to me, it's, it's like you, you should stay in a role, you know, generally 18 to 24 months is a good time, maybe a little bit longer oh, yeah. depending on what you're doing. And if as long as you're challenged and, you know, the role's good enough, right? You can kind of keep going there, but you know, I, I, I kind of get that itch every couple of years to, yeah. to kind of keep moving along, you but, know, and I've got a background that, that kind of shows it. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is one of those sad things where even my, even my dad, it, that, I kind of saw the, well, I, I said, I saw, I wasn't alive, but I studied business. There's kind of that pivot where you start to jump around a little bit, but like 
I know my grandpa was at the same aluminum foundry working in the, you know, seven days a week for years over in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And at the, he did have a kind of cliche classic retirement where at the end he did have a pension and he did have like, um, they gave him a nice golden clock display piece. Yeah. And they used to be kind of a staple of Americana. You get a nice golden watch at your end of your tenure mm-hmm. and it was sustainable. But I think if I were to, it's another topic for another time, but to summarize my, my guess, I would think it's because there's so many variables. Businesses move so quick. Yeah. It's hard for a business to even stand still these days. I look at technology. Yeah. I mean, you can't go a day without a new startup hitting the streets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's incredible. And and the pace of business is different too, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you think back to like, you know, I, I, I like to think back to these pictures of like, you know, Boeing when they're building airplanes in the oh, 50s yeah. and they've got these tables, you know, this big. Yeah. They're drafting on and, and trying to do things, you know, and it's the pace of business is so much different now with computers and email and, you know, Zoom where you can get oh, on yeah. a phone and, and do that, right? You don't have to fly out to meet somebody to get something you know, resolved, you know, so the pace of business is just different. And it never stops either. No, I mean, now no. it's a global economy for pretty much every industry. I could, I can't think of a single industry where it's not a global economy. No, and it's going to continue to accelerate with, with the adaption of, of different types of AI, you know, starting oh, yeah. to come into business, you know, where, you know, I, I used to do a little bit of moonlighting as like a PHP developer. Oh, um, really? Yeah. Um, so I used to build these things. Um, <laughs> what, what kind of stuff were you building? Yeah. So I built this, um, I call it a tick-based game in the early 2000s. When I was first learning PHP, there there was this game called um, Kings of Chaos, if anybody's ever heard of it. Um, it was basically like you get these four factions, like orcs and elves and wizards or whatever, um, but you're, you're not really allocated um, resources, you're allocated time. Right? Oh, really? So in, in order to keep a, a, a level playing field, everybody gets allocated the same amount of time, and what you choose to do with those ticks ticks yeah. of time um is up to you so i built this this little game i called it world conquest um, um it was kind of based on the command and conquer series so oh, like yeah. tanks and planes and all these things but it was the same concept where you um get allocated ticks of time you get to build whatever you want with it so that's what i did with it but um you know that was a really fun time and game experience i wish i would have been in the facebook era it yeah. was right before it um to get that social connection to it you never know what it would have happened but um, I forget what the question was. <laughs> oh, my ADHD is terrible. Don't worry. <laughs> no, I, w- I went off on a tangent there for a minute. No, it was a lot of fun, but, um, you know, kind of going through that, that programming phase, you know, I, I, I learned a ton and, um, that was just, that was a good, good time. And, then, and what inspired you? Cause I know kind of get that itch game. What inspired you to leave EMC onto your next role? Yeah. So at the time, um, when, when I was in the data protection team, they really wanted us to focus on a secondary technology. Right. So kind of get that secondary skill set to kind of help the team and just kind of expand your own, you know, sphere of influence, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started learning about Extreme IO at the time because it was a new acquisition to EMC. And um, I remember a lot of the presentations, a lot of the focus was on this company called Pure Storage. Right. Yeah. You know, you don't want to go with Pure because X, Y, Z thing. And, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, why do we spend so much time talking about Pure yeah. internally when I should be learning about Extreme IO? Right. So. Mm-hmm. Started looking at that at the time, you know, Pierce started hiring a lot of people from EMC, um, oh, yeah. you know, so I ended up over there as a, a pre-sales SC uh, not oh, cool. too long after that. What was the interview process like or did anything stick out? And then what was the culture like when you first joined? Incredible, incredible culture at Pierre, right? So if, if you kind of think about the color orange, if oh, yeah. you look at a color wheel, blue is here. Orange is here, yeah. right? So it's it's like everything we can do opposite of EMC, we're going to do. I right? like it. So that that was the mentality up here, right? So they they 
kind of literally declared war on EMC and said, we're going to take down the VMAX and um, go from there. And it was an incredible company. It was a great experience. You know, the pace was very different, right? Because you're just rapid firing at everything. And, um, you know, Pure is a much different company than them culturally, but also just about how they do their business. Um, you know, a lot of times it's like, you know, we, we just want to talk to a lot of people. You know, it's okay if you don't buy from us. We're not going to put yeah. a ton of pressure on you. We'll just keep moving because yeah. at the end of the day, I kind of feel like you'll come back to us at some point, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, you know, kind of the, 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 the thing they, they coined was, you know, kind of this maintenance extortion um, concept where instead of, you know, uh, having to renew maintenance every three years, it's like we're just going to give you free controllers with a maintenance renewal, right? We're not forcing you into anything. So anyway, there's a whole that, story. That was the biggest curveball when I was starting to learn yeah. about peer storage. I'm like, explain to me, explain this to me again. I don't understand this. It sounds too good to be true. Yeah. Because yeah. it, it was a revolutionary concept when they first introduced it, especially for the storage community. Yeah, yeah, it really was. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people questioned and maybe even some people internally questioned whether or not it was sustainable. But if you kind of think about legacy technology and especially um, stuff that starts aging, right, the gear that's older causes more support calls. So it's actually advantageous yep. for a company to get that older gear swapped out mm-hmm. because it stays current. Um, you know, the, the likelihood of failures to occur is less, right? So the support yep. and maintenance contracts actually get a little bit simpler the longer you have it mm-hmm. just because you're not sitting on five, seven-year-old equipment trying to support stuff that's starting to break down. And they're just the stress levels of having something that is, is funny, depending on like what we're talking about. Seven years is, you know, really old or, you know, with IT, that, that's basically ancient. Yeah, yeah, it's starting <laughs> to get there anytime. I mean, it's like, is it going to break tomorrow? It's like, uh, can I take yeah. vacation? Uh. I know there's still a Windows NT floating around in some data centers out there, but that's oh, yeah. the machine you don't <laughs> dare touch or look at, right? Because you're worried about it breaking. But no, it was an incredible experience. I absolutely loved it. Um, you know, I spent four years in, in pre-sales. I did some SLED, um, some healthcare stuff there. So I really love working with both those entities. Again, learned a ton. Um, and then from there, I actually rolled in. I actually take a step back. Um, every single dime that goes through Pure um, actually goes through a partner. Um, so they don't they don't do any business without a partner, which is incredible, right? Because then the partners don't feel threatened, right? Yep. I'm not going to pull the rug out from under you and take exactly. a deal direct, right? So that's kind of the... The thing you know that I think partners really like about working with Pure, but well, that's a big that's a big value add. Not to cut you off, because there, yeah. there are certain manufacturers where they'll brag like, "Oh yeah, we're eighty percent channel." I'm like, "Okay, well, that's twenty percent of hesitation throughout the partner community where they're worried because yeah. that's their livelihood, that's their customer." Yeah. I mean, that doesn't help them sleep at night. Yeah, yeah, it, it it does, and right, and there's a ton of benefits you know that that Pure does, and they understand that that you know, channel community is just a huge partner, a huge part of their business, you know, and that's still not lost on them over. 12, 13 years later. Yeah. So through that process, I started working with partners. That's how we met, right? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Back in the day. (laughs) Yeah. It's been a while, um, pre-COVID. But yeah, we started, you know, working with partners. I found the partner community, you know, something I hadn't really worked with a ton Mm -hmm. in the past. It was just really an eye-opening experience to me because it's like I, I, what I really understood to like was that I really like working with partners because they generally like working with us, right? And I think that's what... I gravitated towards and I, I became this thing called a partner technical manager, right? So I kind of had purview from like Texas to Carolinas to Florida, um, covering the Southeast, you know, kind of some of the, the, the mid-market partners um, was that. And then I kind of flipped and covered a couple national partners, right? But the focus was basically maximizing partner potential, right, um, at the end of the day. So that's that's what my focus was. Um, and then from there, kind of elevated into this director of global enablement role, right? Oh, wow. So, you know, kind of what what we were what I was seeing personally was 
you know, I, I wanted to host maybe a webinar on, let's just say a flash array or something like that. And, um, I'm like, well, is there a, is there a global thing doing this? And there really wasn't right. They were kind of in, in between some, some roles up here. And what I, what I really wanted to do is take some of the cool things we were doing in the region and just elevate them to a global level. Right. So that's kind of why I moved into that role. So, and I was going to say, so going from handling, you know, most of the United States going to the global level, what was that like? It's, it's, it's a lot of, uh, again, you're, you're always learning because, you know, the, I don't think you really um, appreciate the cultural differences from a technological aspect of how people consume technology across the globe. Um, you know, working with like the Japanese market, just as an example, you know, it's, they, they don't, you, you kind of think of Japan as being really progressive from a language standpoint, but they're, they're actually only like 20% english speaking there. oh really right, right? it's a pretty low number if that and then if you take even that english number and translate into that being a business relevant english topic it's even less right so you know it, it's very rare to find a ton of uh english speaking business native people right that could take the technology and run with it so you run into a lot of translation service capabilities that you really have to kind of build out um you know a lot of times you know the other thing we take for granted in 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 kind of work working environments is how you actually get documents that are created in native English, mm-hmm. get those translated into, you know, native, whatever, Japanese, Japanese, and, yeah. Korean, you know, what, whatever it is, that's, that's a big heavy lift, you know, and it's expensive, you know, one document might cost you tens of thousands of dollars to translate because it has really? to, yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's not, you can't just cut and paste from Google. Otherwise yeah. it looks like it's cut and pasted from Google. Right. Mm-hmm. So, to create a, um, a professionally created document, it's, it's expensive, right? And a lot of times companies that are smaller, and Pure's no exception, is, um, you know, a lot of times you have to, to leverage your local resources to kind of help you be your, your translators. And, you know, there's just a lot of things you learn that you really don't think of when we sit here in our, yeah. our, our U.S. bubble um, uh, and, and think about the challenges, you know, and on top of it, you know, and I, I think about our Japanese market again, it's like, these guys really like to um, have a lot of really deep technical information. Like I need to understand every bit that goes through that thing, right? Yeah. It goes through your box where over here we're, we'll, we'll check the spec specifications of a yeah. box. Well, we might validate it. We might do a POC and then we're good. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, over there, they're like, no, I need to understand everything. Right. So the yeah. level of documentation usually is um, much more, much more and deeper. Yeah. Right. So it, it, you just learn all these different nuances and, you know, you know, things we take for granted, you know, is a lot of the, the, the English slang we use here. A lot of oh, times yeah. you got to pull that back, right? Because not only do they not understand it overseas, but they something could be offensive to them, right, culturally. Sure. So you, those are just things you'd learn on it, but you absolutely have to leverage, you know, your local in-country, in-theater people to, to help you navigate that space. Absolutely. Another good example of, oh, why can't you just use software to translate? It's like, well, you could, yeah. but you might look like an ass. Cause yeah. Some words are appropriate, even just in the United States. Some words in Texas are appropriate, aren't in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the United States, there's differences in language and appropriateness and business yeah. acumen. Going all the way to another country, I can't imagine the stress of making sure. I mean, this white this is a white sheet for the new storage array, but one or two words might be incredibly offensive. Mm-hmm. How do we translate that and make yeah. sure everyone's happy and on the same page? Well, and if you think about it, all of the terminology right that gets used in technical documentation there's there's kind of not a translated word for that a lot of cases especially if it's newer technology you know a lot of times that just transfers right across as how it's printed you know you'll you'll hear you know a native thing and then you'll hear a word you know and then it's back to native language right so it's it's not as easy as just 
you know, leveraging software to, to translate because there's so many technical details involved with documentation that it's just almost impossible. Absolutely. I was going to say, I can't imagine. It, it'll be interesting to see if, like, as cultures keep advancing, if there may be a universal language someday. It, you kind of think that. I've, I've often wondered that, too. You know, at, at some point, you know, it's probably a thousand years in the future, but there yeah. kind of has to be this um, unifying language, you know, and, and it, right now English feels as close to that as, as, it, as it can be just because most of business is done in English. Um, but, you know, you think about the number of people that, that speak Spanish, right? Hundreds of Huge. millions. If you think about the people that speak Hindi or, or Mandarin or anything like that, billion. Literally billions, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it, it, at some point you think there has to be a, a unifying language, but at the same point, you know, for me to go learn something like Hindi, it's, it's hard, right? It's a oh, hard yeah. language to learn from an English native speaker, and it's kind of vice versa. You know, the, 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 the languages are just fundamentally different yeah. versus, you know, things that are like sister languages where, you know, where we come from, you know, I come from a European uh, descent, right? Um, I think my skin yeah, skin color really? gives it away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, from from that that perspective, you know, a lot of times you can kind of see the words, right? Because they're they're close, they're close enough to understand it, and and the formats are similar. But when you switch to something that's completely different, you literally have to learn a completely different, nuanced way to speak a language, which seems incredible when you think about it. Absolutely, it's something I wish. They push more in public schools, but mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see if they start to encourage that more to take a couple different languages too. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know, even in the U.S., we're we're, we're kind of um, you know, I think a little bit language resistant. You know, understanding like if if your goal is to be a global business executive, you have to pick something up, right? Oh, yeah. um, and whether it's like a, a Hindi or um, you know, one of the Chinese languages, something like that. You know, in order to be effective, especially if you plan to travel to Asia. You, you kind of need to learn something. You know, my brother-in-law, he's um, worked for furniture companies for a long time, but he travels to, to Asia probably once a quarter, you know, and he um, spent a lot of time in China. He learned quite a bit of Chinese. Now he spends a lot of time in Vietnam, so he's learning Vietnamese. Cool. Right? But in order for him to really be effective and kind of, you know, integrate with their cultures, right, in order to have good business relationships, that's something he's had to pick up, right? And, you know, he's been fortunate enough to take his kids with him on trips a couple times so they oh, kind of cool. get – um, involved with the, the different languages there, but you know, you know, I think we have to be making sure that we're not just being selfish and saying yeah. English is is the language we're going to use this. But understanding what your goals are personally, you know, you, it's probably imperative that you think about another language. Yeah, absolutely, especially nowadays global economy. I mean, shoot, yeah. everything around us darn near has a global component to it. Everything. I mean, yeah. even these microphones. I mean, sure has been headquartered in, I believe a suburb of Chicago for over 80, 90 years, but wow. nowadays they're made in Mexico. Mm. So, I mean, and then you have their little, even the little instructional manuals in, you know, four to five different languages. I mean, yeah. and then the components come from all over the globe, I would, I would guess as well. So yeah, absolutely. Even yeah. something as simple as this, it's there's a global components to it. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. So, it, but at some point, you know, you, you, know, you kind of think there doesn't need to be a unifying language just so everybody has the same access to, to resources even, right? right? Absolutely. Yeah. And what do you like to do outside of the offices? Is? You know, we do a lot of things. You know, we just got back. Uh, my wife and I had a 25th anniversary. Congrats. Uh, so we're officially, I don't know, old because they call it silver, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so we took a trip to Niagara Falls. So we do like to travel a lot. Um, you know, COVID kind of slowed things down. But we, we, we're we for game. You know, we like to, to go to Florida or California, Niagara Falls. You know, we went to, we're fortunate to go to 
uh, Caribbean cruise and different things, right? So we like to travel. You know, it's it's kind of slowed down a little bit, but we love to do that. Um, you know, I, I love little hobbies. I'm pretty nerdy, so I, yeah. I kind of rotate through hobbies like 3D printing. Oh, cool. What kind of stuff? Um, so I'll bring you a little present, but oh, nice, even man. a simple thing like this, it's just like a fidget spinner, but it's basically no a print-in-place gear that you can just That's incredible. Thanks, man. With. Yeah. So That's brilliant. It's fun. I, I love doing yeah. it. You know, my wife just got me another 3D printer. Now that I have four, I don't know that I need four. Wow. They're fun. You know, my father-in-law, he's he's kind of building a Jeep. You know, he bought these little LED um, lights for it. Yeah. He's like, they don't quite fit quite right. Can you make me a bracket for it? And yeah. Sure enough, he sent me the light. I printed a little, you know, kind of designed and printed a bracket around it so it fits on the Jeep better. And, you know, it's just fascinating to me. I, you know, I've had one for over five years and... And today I'll still sit and watch it print, even though I've printed hundreds of objects, right? You know, because it's just like this thing makes things out of thin air. <laughs> you know? It's it's one of the most revolutionary technologies yeah. in our lifetime. I mean, do you have any, and now it's getting to more and more different types of materials. Like now, I mean, it used to be, and it still is probably about 190000 for a metal printer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But the price point keeps getting lower and lower, just yeah. like with the plastics too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, most things are plastics because it's the easiest thing to print with. But you know, I've even got a, a filament that's made out of wood fibers. You know, it's literally oh, really? wood. Um, so I've printed a couple things out of that. But yeah, the applications are, are getting better. The printers are getting better and faster all the time and cheaper. Um, you know, because today printing isn't super easy to do, but it's better than it was even two years ago. Absolutely. Um, just the way they go. But yeah, they're revolutionary. You know, I think back to my Dactronics days, I remember um, kind of working with a, an engineer there at one time. You know, they used to have this thing called a glow cube, and it was basically literally a, a plastic cube. It had a fluorescent yellow front on it. Mm-hmm. And to build a display, it would just flip the cube over, right? Yeah. So, you know, instead of flipping like digits on it, it would just flip the cube over to black or yellow. Mm-hmm. And, um, they were working on a new concept at the time. Instead of flipping an entire cube, they were just going to flip a face. Yeah. Right? So it just had this electromagnetic component to it. You know, it repel the magnet or suck the magnet in. Right? It was simple as that. So anyway, they, they were working on the concept for this thing. And I remember him telling me, like, hey, we just designed the the plastic component for one of our tests. going to ship it off to the manufacturer. You know, it'll take a couple of days. We'll get a piece back in four days. And, it, you know, I think about today, it's like, what if we took that thing and you're able to just 3D print your part in two hours yeah. you know, instead of taking four days? You know, the manufacturing um, aspects of of 3D printing is incredible. You know, I, I can't imagine, you know, if, if you're in like a designing, a, a role where you design a lot of components, especially if they can be fabricated out of plastic, even at a design level, you know, the the implications of having something that only costs you a thousand bucks to to prototype and reiterate over quickly is just incredible. I mean, it lets so many people get into businesses because the bar- the cost to barrier to get in, yeah, it just drops so much. Just like media production too, you usually yeah. have to spend a fortune to have a building, have to have the best equipment on the planet, and the price point. Like now, thanks to technology, just gets so low. Everyone can join in, or darn yeah. near everyone. Well, and I, I know a couple times this last year, Micro Center actually ran a um, a special. If you became like a part of their club or membership or whatever they'd basically give you like two hundred dollars off this ender three printer it made it a hundred dollars oh, cool. really a like hundred dollar ender three which is a a, a decent printer yeah certainly for a hundred dollars it's very decent so you know that the barrier to entry is just really minimal and a lot of times it's so revolutionary for all the manufacturers too i remember it was silence co headquartered out of utah mm-hmm. they're one of the first suppressor companies to make a suppressor 
completely 3D printed out of metal end canal. Oh, wow. So imagine going from welding those baffles with all the errors that could come with welding inherently just because of what it is. Yeah. Now it's just printed from the ground up. And I know yeah. all the air, like Lockheed, Boeing, all the defense industries for the aerospace, now they're using the 3D metal, metal printers for all the aircraft components. Yeah. Yeah. And they're talking about how it you know, just cuts the time of production into a fraction of what it used to be to make a traditional metal mold. I mean, the economies of scale is just huge. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, and, and you think about it, it's like the, the, metal, the metal fabrication or the metal printing is really kind of where the future of that is going to go, yeah. at least from a, a business standpoint. Because it's like, you know, I, I kind of chuckle because a lot of times you, you kind of hear these horror stories on the Internet are like, people are just 3D printing guns at home. You know, it's like... <laughs> There is no way I'm going to 3D print a no. gun out of what the materials I have access to and shoot it. <laughs> well, it's, it's right. also that misconception, too. It's like kind of like when, when Glock first hit the market and Mr. Gustav Glock in Austria brought it, all the news agencies were saying, oh, yeah, it's polymer. It'll get past metal detectors. It's like the, the barrel and the slide are all metal because inherently that's where the pressure of the bolt is when it yeah. expands. Yeah. It's like right again, right now, that's why I love about technology. It moves so quick. But with the current technology, you have a 3D printing you're printing the lower, just like whether it's yeah. the rifle lower or the pistol lower, mm-hmm. it's the grip. So there's, there's no explosives happening there. Right. The bullet's not coming out there. It's basically just the carrier for the device. So yeah. that, that's why it can be a weaker material than metal. But even in the past five years, it used to be, you know, they'd have it. If you've ever seen the prototype with the AR-15, mm-hmm. after a couple of shots, the end of it would just crack off. Yeah. Because the, the polymers at the time weren't that advanced. Yeah. But every year they get better and better and better. Yeah, and they do. I think within our lifetime, we will see, you know, knock on wood, I think you'll see 3D printed barrels. Probably, yeah. That's the most tricky part because that's where all the pressure, that's where the whole reaction happens. Yeah, and you really have to, you know, the thing about 3D printing is, like, it, it can be structurally weak because everything is printed in a layer, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're printing at a 0.1 or 0.2 millimeter layer, yeah. right? And at any given point, if you, if you use enough pressure, you can peel the layer apart. Right? Yeah. So until they figure out how to actually fuse it so the layers can't be built apart, peeled apart, mm-hmm. then that's, that's where you then have the opportunity to build something like that. And, and even then, you know, to me, it's still like, man, I, I don't know if I would ever trust it. <laughs> you know, it's going to be a long time before I would even think about that. And I'll probably just watch someone else do it if they say they can and away we'll go. But yeah, no, they're incredible. I'd, I love them. Oh, is that, it's amazing. And the thing that blows my mind, I know it might sound simple to most folks, but to me it's amazing. Something that seems so complex, you could print it. Because this was done in a single print, right? You didn't mm-hmm. have to put anything together. It just no. printed, yeah. and yet it moves. Yeah, it's, it's called, me, it's called print in place. So anytime you, you build a complex object that doesn't have to be built, it's just print in place. So, yeah, you just it prints the wheel. It prints the, the center bearing. It prints the little you know, kind of star balls around the, the edges, and you just pick it up and play with it. And it has that perfect little little slope inside, so it all just—it is amazing. You can print it without having to assemble it. That to me, that's one of the most fascinating things with three yeah. D printing. I have a couple of friends who are really into it, and the fact they could all be done without having to really assemble it. Yeah, and, like the tolerances well, are—I mean, it's just well, incredible. and even something you know for you as like a small business owner, you could yeah. print these things in like whatever your favorite color is. You could put your T logo on right, exactly. it exactly. You know, so it's it's a promotional item. You know, they they. They're really starting, you know, the only drawback to, to most printing today is that it's kind of single color like this. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the Prusa printers that I like, you know, they have this thing called an MMU. It's a multi-color um, filament oh, really? changer. It'll change up to five colors mm-hmm. into your print. So you can actually start getting 
up to five colors, even five materials in the same print. That's incredible. Yeah. So th that's going to be kind of my next project. I don't have that yet, but that's on my radar. Um, but yeah, and you think about it, it's like if I want to go and print the the little gears as orange and the outside is black, or if I want to do a layered technique, you know, if you go look at a lot of the, the 3D printed stuff that actually has that, you know, it's like mm -hmm. I can build, you know, maybe little figurines or action figures, yeah. you know, whatever toys you want and, and have up to five colors, you know, which is kind of kind of cool. It's amazing. Yeah. And then I think you were telling me earlier, you like to do a little fencing too? I used to do f saber fencing. You really? Know, a lot of people don't even no way. barely know what that is. But <laughs> So what, what is that? Yeah, so the, the, it, it, everybody's probably seen it, most prob probably in um, different types of movies where they're fencing. But there's actually three different types of fencing weapons. There's an epee, there's a foil, and there's a saber. Mm -hmm. Right, so the the epee and the foil are kind of stabbing weapons. So each on that's a, that's a cliche one you see in films. Yeah, like uh, what was it? With James Bond, and Pierce Brosnan, yes. and was Die yep. Another Day. Yep, yep, yeah, where he went against guy. So almost all the time, that's going to be epee because it's all white. Yep, exactly. Um, they're not. They don't have the silver stuff, which is um, uh, electrical in nature. Right, it, it can transmit signals. So it's almost always epee because it's kind of the simplest one to portray. Um, but they're stabbing weapons, right? So really? they have little tiny buttons on the end of those, so yeah. it actually triggers a response if you hit the, the oh, person. Yeah. Yeah. So the difference between the, the, the foil and the epi is the epi is the entire body's the target. You can literally stab somebody in a toe for a point. Oh, really? Where um, the foil, if you look at how uh, the, the equipment that they wear, um, you'll see that the body has um, basically silver, whereas where you can be electrically touched. So it's... It's meant to be more like you, you have to pierce a vital organ is kind of the concept really? behind it. So you have to hit them in, you know, the abdomen somewhere yeah. to, to score the point. Well, saber is completely different. It's a cutting and slashing weapon. Um, is so it the, quite literally, a, it looks like a traditional saber? Yeah, yeah. It's got so the it's little... Because I remember with the yeah. one we were just talking about, it almost looks like a little toothpick. Like it's a very straight yeah, line. Yeah, they're all very skinny. Um, it doesn't have a thick blade on it because it's, um, you know, the tip on it is the second fastest thing in uh, Olympic sports next oh, really? to a bullet. No right? way. So hundreds of miles an hour for an Olympic saber fencer, the tip speed of it. So it's incredibly fast. Wow. Um, the people are incredibly athletic. So how I got started with this thing, I, you know, I live over in Rockwall and, um, we went to this place called the rise, the Rockwall indoor sports Academy or, uh, sports expo at the time. It was this old cattle shed converted into an athletic facility. They've got a couple soccer fields, basketball, volleyball, um, in the back, they do gymnastics. Um, my daughter used to do gymnastics there. Well, one summer they were actually had this fencing club in the back. My son at the time, he, discovered this thing just through an open house and he started doing it and i watched him do it for like three months i'm like man that looks really fun yeah. you know so i just started trying it i just kept going at it and um you know after a couple of years of um you know going through saber fencing and a lot of time doing it um i was able to go to one of the national meets um in one of the over 40 things i always, I always yeah. kind of chuckle because it's like they create this special grouping of people for for old guys like me yeah right so it's like i'm just the one of the faster old guys is all <laughs> it equates to but i, I won a national medal oh, no um, way it's a, awesome a tied for a third pace third oh, cool. place so it's a cool medal i have you know it's just it's it's more of an achievement right it's yeah. like what, what are your goals what do you want to get to and that was something i always wanted to do so i'm pretty proud of that one i don't i don't really fence anymore just because my my kids have moved up and on their way and, um, you know, they, they kind of do it. So I, it feels a little weird because all the fencing clubs in the area, they're just full of, you know, younger kids, you know, kind of like yeah. middle school age mostly. Um, so it just kind of feels weird being a, a, a guy going and whipping on a bunch of, you know, 
those children, right? <laughs> That's awesome. But it's a ton of fun if anybody does it. If anybody's fenced, they know what I'm talking about. It's a ton of fun. If you have the opportunity to even try it, just, just try it. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. I might have to add that to my bucket list. It's one of those things yeah. where I've never thought about it, but now that you mentioned it, be, like you see it in the movies all the time, it'd be so cool to give it a go. Yeah, it, it is really fun. You know, and some of them are easier to get started. You know, the, the footwork, you don't really you don't really appreciate how good the footwork is of um, highly skilled fencers. They're incredibly athletic people, especially with saber. It's such a fast thing because the points can literally last two seconds. Really? You know, where Epe, it's more, uh, more of forth. a strategy back and forth, wait for the right opening. Mm-hmm. Saber, a lot of times you're just like, boom, you're right at the guy. And two seconds later, the points decided, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, me being not young anymore, um, you know, just understanding, you know, the the speed of some of these people's capabilities is really eye opening. That's awesome. Yeah, it was a ton of fun. I miss it. <laughs> now, and what's the future look like for Chad? You said you're taking a take a little peek at cybersecurity. I, I have, you know, I, I got a little bit of time. You know, I'm not up here anymore, so I'm just kind of looking for the right opportunity. Um, I actually started taking cybersecurity classes up at Colin. You know, I, oh, cool. I got a little bit of time, and um, it's kind of the space I'm really most interested in, just because it's it's such a fascinating topic. You know, just not just from the technology and what it has and what it can deliver, but just, you know, the industry as a whole, you see this, this entire ransomware thing, the way it's playing out. And, oh, yeah. you know, we, we talked about the MGM thing. It's, it's just such a fascinating space because of all the back and forth, you know, you plug one hole, you know, the, the water stops coming in all of a sudden the, the rat chews the hole in the other, the other yep. side of the boat and now water's coming in. Right. So it's, it's this constant ebb and flow of, of, you know, trying to stay ahead of, you know, these threat actors that are trying to, to infiltrate places. And it's, I, I, to me, it's such a fascinating space because it's, it's not just like one discipline or thing you're doing in it, right. There's so many different things you can do within the cybersecurity space. So that's why oh, yeah. I'm interested in it. And, um, you know, kind of. That's where I kind of want to end up in my next role. There's, there's literally so many areas of cybersecurity. Yeah. It's, it's never ending because we have, we'll have new tools tomorrow, and there'll be new threat vectors tomorrow as companies expand. Yeah. And you have different areas. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, I, I watched the um, there was a, a mini series. It was basically about Google and their cybersecurity team. I think it was on Netflix or something. But you know, they're talking about you know how they their red team hackers. You know, they they were trying to figure out how to infiltrate. Well, they decided they were going to put I forget what it was. So somebody might call my bluff on this, but it was something like a, a teddy bear or something. They were putting a device in, they were trying to give it away as an internal prize to get somebody to <laughs> plug this USB thing into their device, yeah. you know, and that, and that was kind of the premise was this team was just trying to figure out a way for somebody to plug a USB drive into their system and compromise it. So, mm-hmm. you know, that just sounds like an incredible amount of fun to do something like that as, as you get to use, um, you know, a lot of technology to do it and a lot of, creativity you know that's one thing i you know i I like working for smaller companies because they generally allow you to be a little bit more creative just because there's not so much uh you know stuff that comes down from the top right so they rely on their employees to be creative to get the job done and you know by by leveraging creativity you get to do a lot of fun things right so that that just sounds incredibly fun too absolutely yeah it's astonishing and it's it's a little disappointing once in a while where my company will do a test and we're like how much social engineering will they fall for this time and it's so cliche but it still works we're It's like, hey, here's the break room. It's a couple of malicious USBs. Put it on the table. Yeah. And inevitably, more often than not, at least one will get plugged in and then, bam. Well, the easy, <laughs> to me, the easiest one is you just go leave QR codes laying around. Oh, my gosh. It, it, every time I see those at a restaurant, I'm like, God dang it. Like, and, and you can make them look <laughs> legit. Like, t- oh, take yeah. a 3D printer. You print yeah. a QR code on the front. You write chilies on the back and official yeah. color. You set it on the desk. Who's going to say anything? Exactly. And, I malicious mean, website. 
And then just like talking about the cat and mouse thing a little earlier, now there are apps where it'll actually scan those to make sure they're not malicious, mm. but people have to know about those tools. Yeah. And that, I mean, it's cliche to say, but knowledge is half the battle or knowing is half the battle. You, a lot of people just don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. So it's a fun space, yeah. It's, I always tell people, like, because that's a majority of what my company does. They founded it in 2017, focusing on, you know, networking and security. And there's just because I know kind of inevitably, not everything, but, you know, most things will, have, will be, end up going up to the cloud, but you always have to get to the cloud and connect there securely. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where it's a Rubik's Cube of IT. There's so many things changing in cybersecurity, so many new tools coming out, yeah. so many new threats. I mean, who would have thought nowadays you actually have ransomware as a service? Yeah. You could pay another the third party and they'll do it all for you. It's it's a legitimate business, yeah. right? even though it's it's, it's not a, the kind of business you want to be affiliated with. But there are legitimate yeah. businesses well, that it's an illegitimate it's an illegitimate legitimate business. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly it, and it's it's incredible. Um, talking about illegitimate businesses, we need to talk about Trayvon Diggs's ACL. Who? I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, assuming that, I'm assuming that's the sports balls. It's 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 a Cowboys. Um, before before we we. Log okay. off for the air. The Huge Cowboys fan. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. right? I, I know the business of the Cowboys. <laughs> yes. So Trayvon Diggs, star cornerback, tore his ACL yesterday. So here we, Ugh. you know, I thought it was too good to be true, right? Here we, here we are sitting here thinking the Cowboys are going to have this amazing year, and one of their best defensive players is done for the year, right? So, Jeez. I think I'm more impressed with Jerry Jones just building a multi, I believe the last valuation was $4.2 billion. It's, it's probably over double that now. It's, um, I, th- I think, you know, it's kind of crazy to think about. You see these valuations and, like, you know, the Washington Commanders. Um, um, it's hard to say that word. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you think about, I forget what their valuation was, $4 billion, something like that, and they come out and they sell for, like, 6 or $7 billion. I if, if the Cowboys actually hit the street, I can't imagine what. It would be probably 10 plus. I, I, I mean, to me, it's like it's, 15. The marketing is brilliant. It's America's team. Yeah. Like, and I still can't believe Jerry didn't just buy Tom Brady. Yeah, it's basically a guaranteed Super Bowl. I know that much about the sports balls. Yeah, yeah, no, it's <laughs> it's so it's fun. I I follow them. Um, you know, it's been a long time since we've done anything relevant. I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> twenty plus years. You know, I was going to say counting. Uh, I was going to say <laughs> I always see the cliche meme on the social media where they have like the pic. Oh, this might date us too. Yeah. A picture of something called a floppy disk. Yeah, and on the little inscription it says, you know, Dallas Cowboys Super Bowl pictures. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's funny, um, but yeah, here we are. Oh, all I was gonna say is, I'm sure they have a couple backups, and there's always next season too. <laughs> you know, Plus, after, after they, 20 years, though, you're you're tired of saying next season, and you know, this is probably the most promising lineup, two game start we've had in a long time, and their roster is really, really talented, and mm-hmm. you just hate to see where you know they finally have the talent, and hopefully the coaching to go with it to to make some noise, and yeah, you know, it starts. Okay. Chopping, chopping, chopping dominoes down. <laughs> well, you know, I was going to say it's kind of cliche, but uh, timing is half everything in life. You never know. It is, yeah. So we're hopeful. We'll see how it goes, and you know, maybe our, our next time we meet together, we'll, we'll be celebrating a championship or something. You never know. <laughs> well, Chad, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I really appreciate you. it, but thank yeah, you. It's my pleasure. Thank you, everyone, so much for taking the time to listen. Don't forget, Topping Talks is also on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and more. Also, don't forget to take the time to like, subscribe, subscribe. Comment. Don't forget to also tell your friends, tell your coworkers, heck, tell your family, tell anyone, tell your enemies, tell anyone and everyone. Just stay safe. Have a great day.
Shopping talks.